last time can help us with really difficult passages. Turn with me to Mark 8 for just a moment. Mark chapter 8. And there's a passage in Mark 8 that sometimes Christians are a little bit embarrassed by. And it's in verses 22 through 26. And in Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26, Jesus has to touch a man twice in order for the man to be healed. It's a blind man. Jesus touches him once, and his sight is partially restored, but not fully restored. And sometimes we stumble around, and we're a little uncomfortable about what to make uh, out of the episode. Let's read it. Let me read it for us, and then I want you to see how looking at what precedes it and what follows it helps give clarity to that really difficult passage. In Mark chapter 8, verse 22, Mark wrote, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought to him, they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his house, saying, Do not even enter the village. And so again, that's a little bit of a difficult quandary. What do we do with this? And why did Jesus have to touch the man twice in order for the man to be healed? Why wasn't he healed the first time? Well, go back with me to the story that precedes it, and, uh, and let's start back in chapter 8, and let's say verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Signed deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet? Now, circle every time he uses the word see or understand. He says, Do you not yet? see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? So to not see is to not comprehend, and to not comprehend is to have a hardened heart. He goes on to say, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Or you could say, do you not yet what? Do you not yet see? And then we have the story of the twice-touched blind man. So on one side, the disciples, they're hard-hearted, they don't see, they don't understand. You have the twice-touched blind man. Now let's look on the other side of that story. Look in verse 27. This is following Jesus healing the blind man. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, 
Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. Now, Peter is like the twice-touched blind man. Peter sees partially because he understands Jesus to be the Messiah, but he doesn't understand Jesus fully because he doesn't understand that Jesus is to be the crucified Messiah. Peter's been touched once, but Peter needs to be touched again. And where is Peter touched the second time? Uh, Not till Jerusalem and not till the resurrection. It's only at the resurrection that Peter comes to understand and, so to speak, to see what kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. So what we have in chapter 8, verse 22 through 26 is called an enacted parable. It's not that Jesus couldn't have healed the blind man instantly. It's that he chose not to heal the blind man instantly. In order that it could become a teaching tool to the disciples and for those that would follow the disciples' teaching as to understanding why the disciples didn't fully get it. Because they'd only been touched once. They only saw a part of the truth. They only saw one aspect that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, but not the full picture that he was going to be the crucified Messiah. And so by reading on either side, you can see before the twice-touched blind man, Jesus says, you've got hard hearts and you don't see clearly. Then we see Jesus touching the blind man twice. Then on the other side, we see what it means that Peter only sees partially and has a hardened heart. He's not able to fully comprehend who Jesus was and is. And so the important point in reading the Bible like this or reading the Gospels like this, reading narrative literature like this, is to understand the stories are often interrelated and they help interpret for us the flow of uh, theological thought. Now, another way that I want you to contemplate with me and consider with me about reading the Bible is reading the Bible horizontally for just a moment. Now, the beauty of the Gospels is the fact that we have four Gospels. And in many ways, the first three Gospels in particular overlap. And they tell a lot of the same stories. John is very different, and John doesn't really parallel the first three Gospels in the stories he tells until the triumphal entry in John chapter, John chapter 12. But the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they look at Jesus in the same way. And so you can often compare these Gospels to see if there's any particular aspect of a story that they're emphasizing that's not being emphasized in the other accounts. Let me give you an example. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. It's in Mark 1, Matthew 4, and Luke 4. So keep your, uh, keep your finger in those spots. Let's turn to Mark 1 for just a moment because it's the briefest of the accounts. And then we're going to look and compare particularly Matthew 4 and Luke 4 
and see if we might not be able to draw out some particular aspects that Luke, in particular, is wanting to emphasize. Now, look with me in Mark chapter 1, in verses 12 and 13, for just a moment. The first thing that, that I would notice is, if I were comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first thing I would notice is that John doesn't describe it at all. John doesn't describe Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, so he's not involved in the picture at all. The second thing that I would notice is how brief Mark is. When we turn to Matthew, we'll see that Matthew has 11 verses that describe the temptation of Jesus. Luke has 13 verses that describe the temptation of Jesus. Mark has only two verses to describe the temptation of Jesus. And Mark does not tell us what any of the temptations were. And although Matthew and Luke give the order of the temptations differently, they they at least describe the three same temptations. Notice that Mark doesn't describe any of the temptations. And Mark does not even tell us in in a pointed fashion whether Jesus was victorious or not. He doesn't tell us that Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness. Now, it's implied... Because the first miracle that Jesus performs is an exorcism. But look in verse 12 and 13, very succinct and very abbreviated. Mark writes in verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him, drove him, like a wind drives a ship or like a shepherd drives the sheep. The Spirit drove him. To go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast and the angels were ministering to him. Now when we look at Matthew and Luke, we're going to notice a couple of things. One is Mark uses the word impelled or drove. Matthew and Luke use the word led. They said Jesus was led into the wilderness Mark said he was driven into the wilderness. So he uses a little bit harder term. Mark's the only one that mentions the wild beast. And if you've ever been in the Judean wilderness, Paul and I were there last year, it's very desolate, very barren. And and Mark heightens the, the seriousness of the situation. He is in the wilderness. He's all alone. Satan is there and there are wild animals there. And then Matthew and Mark tell us that there were angels that ministered to Jesus. So Mark is very brief, just two little verses. Now, turn with me over to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And and we're going to flip back and forth just a little bit. Now, what what I'm wanting us to see is... Let's say that you were studying the temptation of Jesus. Let's say you were studying it in Luke's gospel. It's good to look and to see what the other gospel writers say and how the other gospel writers present the same event so that you can then see if Luke might not highlight or heighten a particular aspect. For example, look with me in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Matthew writes... Then Jesus was led. Remember, Mark said he was driven or impelled or, or uh, drove by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Now, notice Matthew mentions the Holy Spirit one time. Go with me over to Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. Luke says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, Matthew says Jesus was led by the Spirit, but Luke says that he was led and full of the Spirit. And so if we were reading Luke's gospel and we were wanting to really get to know Luke's gospel and we were wanting to understand Luke's gospel as, as best as we could, we might wonder, I wonder if Luke mentioning the Holy Spirit twice might indicate that Luke has an interest in the Holy Spirit that exceeds the interest that the other gospel writers have in the Holy Spirit. Now, if we had time, I, I could show you how that, that is exactly true. For instance... If you remember the story of John the Baptist and when the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child, you remember that, that the angel Gabriel said that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And then a little bit later in chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel goes to Mary and he tells Mary that she's going to conceive a child, he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you meaning that the conception of the Holy Spirit in Mary was the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, meet. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke says, in chapter 1, and speaks words of prophecy. At the end of chapter 1, you remember Zechariah is punished by uh, God because he doubted that God could could... Uh, through his relationship with Elizabeth, caused her to become pregnant since they were already elderly. God caused it so that he could not speak. And so during the entire pregnancy, he was unable to speak. And then the day that John was circumcised and named, Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to speak words of prophecy. And then Jesus, just a short time after he was born, was turn with me to Luke chapter 2. He's taken into Jerusalem, and there's a man by the name of Simeon that approaches Mary and Joseph. And look with me in verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And Luke's the only one that describes Simeon. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the customs of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God and, and pronounced um, words of prophecy over, over Jesus. So you see, John the Baptist filled with the Spirit while in his mother's womb. Mary is, is ministered to by the Holy Spirit. She conceives Jesus. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks words of prophecy. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks words of prophecy. Simeon is filled with the Holy Spirit. Look with me in chapter 3 when it comes to the baptism of Jesus. In chapter 3, in verse 21, Luke writes... Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. 
And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Now, Mark and Matthew mention the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, but Luke's the only one that says that the Spirit of God descended in, the, in bodily form like a dove. Then we come to chapter 4. Jesus is full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. He's tempted by the devil. And look with me in verse um, 14. After he's been tempted by the devil, Luke says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 4 and verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Then Luke describes him going into a synagogue in Nazareth. He preaches his very first sermon, and notice what Jesus says in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So we go back to, the, to that very first verse. And the fact that Luke mentions the Holy Spirit twice in chapter 4, verse 1, while Matthew and Mark mention him once tips us off to the fact Luke might have an interest in the Spirit that surpasses what the other gospel writers have. And in fact, what's the book of Acts about? It's about the ministry of the Spirit through the early church. And Luke wrote the book of Acts as well as the third gospel. So in the very first verse, when you compare Luke to Matthew and Mark, you see that Luke has a unique emphasis on the Spirit. Now, the second thing that I want you to, to notice with me is, is this, and that is Luke places before the temptation the genealogy of Jesus. Now, keep your hand there and go back to Matthew with me. Notice what is before the temptation of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. What, what immediately precedes it at the end of the third chapter? The baptism of Jesus. Okay, flip over to Mark chapter 1 with me. Go with me to Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, the temptation of Jesus is in verses 12 and 13. What is in verses 9 and 10? The baptism of Jesus. So Matthew and Mark have baptism temptation, but notice what Luke does. Luke has the baptism in chapter 3, Luke 3, 21 and 22, then the genealogy, and then the temptation. Now, this is interesting. It's as if he's taken the baptism and the temptation and he's pulled them apart and he puts in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Matthew's gospel, in fact, just turn with me to Matthew's gospel again for just a moment. We're going to be flipping back and forth between the gospels just a little bit, you can see. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. And it's interesting that the genealogy of Jesus begins with Abraham and it works its way to Jesus. He begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, and he goes all the way to Jesus. Now, he begins with Abraham because he's writing to a Jewish, Jewish Christians, and he wants to tie Jesus back to the founder of the Jewish faith. The first Jewish person was Abraham. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. 
So Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus, which makes perfect sense. We'll go back to Luke now. Why in the world would Luke separate the baptism and the temptation and place the genealogy? So you might not think about that if you didn't compare Luke to Matthew and to Mark. And so the real question is, why did the Holy Spirit do it? Because the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to separate the baptism and the temptation of Jesus with the genealogy. And you know, and a lot of times we read that and we never stop and ask, what's the Holy Spirit teaching me? What's the Holy Spirit trying to say to me? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to do something so different than Matthew, than he inspired Matthew and Mark to do? Well, you'll notice the, if you go back and look at the genealogy for just a moment in, in Luke's gospel, that Luke starts with Jesus. Now, remember, Matthew began with Abraham and he worked to Jesus. Now, what Luke does is he begins with Jesus, but he doesn't stop until he gets where? Who's the last name in Luke's genealogy right before you get to the temptation? Yeah, the last human name is who? Adam, the son of God. Adam is described as the son of God. And then in the very next verse, we're going to find, or in the previous, in the previous passage, at Jesus' baptism, who did God say Jesus was? He's the son of God. So interestingly enough, while Matthew begins with Abraham and goes to Jesus... Luke begins with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Well, Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles, and he wants them to know that Jesus came not just for Jewish people, but also for Gentile people. So he takes Jesus as a descendant of Adam. Jesus is a descendant of a Gentile, not just Abraham. But he also wants us to compare and contrast Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We learn that at the baptism. Adam is the Son of God. We learn that at the genealogy. So think about Adam and Jesus for just a moment. They're both sons of God. Adam was created and placed in the most idyllic setting mankind has ever known, the Garden of Eden. Jesus is in a barren wilderness. Adam could eat of any tree he wanted in the garden except for one... Jesus didn't have any tree that he could eat from. Adam had a companion. Jesus was absolutely alone. Adam succumbed to sin and sent the entire human race catapulting to eternal damnation. Jesus has resisted the devil and he has begun to undo what Adam did. Now, it would be so easy to read past all of that and to miss that Luke wants us to understand that there's a contrast he wants to draw between Adam and Jesus. And one way we're able to see how important this is, is by comparing Matthew and Mark to Luke. And Luke has set it up in an entirely different way. Uh, the other thing that we mention as we, as we work our way through and we compare particularly Matthew and, 
in uh, Luke's gospel that Matthew's order of the temptations again is turn the stone into bread, jump from the temple, a very high mountain, bow down and worship uh, Satan and all the kingdoms will be given to him. But in Luke's gospel, it is turn the stone into bread, he's taken to a very high mountain, and then he's taken to the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, look with me again in verse in verse, uh, in Luke's gospel, in verse 9. Now, again, this is the second temptation in Matthew. And so we, we want to ask ourselves, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to make this temptation the third temptation? Verse 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God... Remember, that's what Abraham, I mean, uh, what Adam was. He was the son of God. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. He will command his angels concerning you. So he quotes from Psalm 91, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So the question is, why did he do it? And, and we answered this one a little bit earlier, remember. The story of Luke's gospel begins in the temple with Zechariah having a vision of the angel Gabriel. And then Jesus, when he is an infant, is taken to the temple in Luke's gospel. Jesus, at the age of 12, is taken to the temple uh, and left behind by his family. Uh, the temple is very important. The very last story in Luke's gospel, in fact, turn over to chapter 24 with me. The very last story in the gospel is the disciples going to the temple after Jesus has ascended to heaven. The very last story in chapter 24, look with me in verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and after worshiping him returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And you can see all the way through Luke's gospel that he has an emphasis on the temple that exceeds the other gospel writers' emphasis. So the question is, why did he do it? Because in Luke's mind, it was the most diabolical, despicable, disgusting of the three temptations to take the Holy Son of God to the holy city and to place him at the holy temple and then to tempt him to jump from that. And the point that Luke's wanting to make to you and to me is, if he would do that to Jesus, how much more will he do it to us? If he will tempt Jesus to profane the holy, how much more will he tempt us to profane the holy? And so Luke teaches us that if we want to defeat temptation, we've got to understand that everything goes back to God. That it's really a decision between if I love myself more than I love God. Because look at the way that Jesus responds to the three temptations. The first temptation is to turn stone into bread. And Jesus says to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Interestingly enough, Luke doesn't record that part of the saying, but only Matthew does. So if you look in Luke, he doesn't say every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, but it is in Matthew. 
And so Jesus said, he takes, it back to, he takes it back to God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second temptation in Luke's gospel is to, is to bow down and worship Satan. And notice what Jesus says in verse 8. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so you can only serve one master. And then the third temptation he responds to was with, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the way he responds, he takes it back to God. Temptation is always about me and God. Who matters most to me? Who do I love the most, me or God? And when I succumb to temptation, I need to admit I love myself more than I love God because Jesus demonstrates he loved God more than he loved himself because It mattered more to him to eat from the word of God than it did to have physical food. It mattered more to him that he worship and serve God only than to have all the kingdoms of the world. And it mattered more to him not to test his father than to challenge challenge his father. So by comparing Luke and Matthew in particular, you can see that Luke opens up a whole vista of ideas that are unique to him and that they, they, in a sense, jump off the page more clearly when you compare Luke to Matthew. Now, you can do this all the way through the synoptic gospels whenever they tell the same story. But let me show you, give you another illustration here in these last, uh, last 10 minutes or so. Uh, and that is how they each present the death of Jesus differently and how they present... Well, let, let, let's, let's look at it that look at it there. If we have time, we'll look at one more one more example. Turn with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter fifteen. Mark chapter fifteen. You see, when we think about the death of Jesus, it's easy for the gospels to bleed over one another, and and we become a little bit unfamiliar with the distinctives of each of the gospels. Matthew and Mark are very similar in the way they describe Jesus dying. Luke describes Jesus' death from a very different perspective. It's like two different people looking at the same event and they each have their own vantage point. And John from an entirely different perspective than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Look with me in in Mark 15 for just a moment. And we're going to compare Mark's account to Luke's account, to John's account, to get a fuller picture of what happened at the cross and for us to see the individual emphases of of each of the writers. Look with me, for example, beginning in verse 22. Now, you might be familiar with the fact of the seven final sayings from the cross. Maybe you've even heard a Bible study or read a book on it. Seven final sayings from the cross. One of those is found in... Matthew and Mark, three of them are found in Luke, and three of them are found in John. The three in John aren't found in the other Gospels, the three in Luke aren't found in the other Gospels, and then Matthew and Mark have one that they have in common that aren't in in, um, Luke or John. So look with me beginning in verse 22. Then they brought him to a place, to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. 
It was the third hour. So it's about nine o'clock in the morning when Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross. The inscription of the charges against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by hurled abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now notice, in Mark's gospel, there's no thief on the cross that is saved. The thieves are mocking, they're berating, they're belittling him. When the sixth hour came, about 12 o'clock, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, till about 3 o'clock. At the ninth hour, at about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated, My God, my God, why, has, why have you forsaken me? So the only thing that Jesus says in Mark's gospel, are, he doesn't say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He doesn't say um, to a thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say to his mother Mary that she is to go into the home of John. And she, he doesn't say to John that, that he is to take Mary into her home. All that he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when he dies, he lets out an inarticulate scream. Notice it says in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. When you read Mark's picture, the the death of Jesus on the cross is heavy and dark and foreboding, and there's a sense of hopelessness. He has been abandoned by the Father. Everybody around him is against him. None of his followers are nearby. There's, his mother isn't there. John the Apostle isn't there. There's, no, there's nobody close to him. He has been crucified. He is naked and beaten and battered. He is suffocating. He is drowning in his own blood. He's got open wounds. And he screams an inarticulate scream. And there he dies. A very horrid, terrible death. Turn with me over to John's gospel for a moment. Go all the way over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, Jesus speaks three times from the cross. And we're going to look just at those three sayings that Jesus spoke from the cross, but it's a little bit different what takes place on the cross in John's gospel. Look with me, for instance, in verse 25. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, John 19, 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, 
the mother of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John the Apostle, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And so Jesus speaks words of compassion. And then notice he says in verse 28, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was standing there so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, remember in Mark, it's an inarticulate scream. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It seems to be a much calmer, a little bit calmer scene. Now, the question the scholars sometimes ask, are Mark and John in in contradiction? And, And I would say absolutely not. They're both telling the same story from different perspectives. They're telling the exact same story from different perspectives. Paul and I are big uh, UofL fans. We can't be football fans because we don't have a football team this year, but we're big basketball fans. Made it to the final eight the last two years. My executive pastor at our church is a gigantic UK fan. So I'm not exactly sure what the Auburn-Alabama, University of Alabama rivalry is like. It's probably pretty intense. Well, the UK-UofL rivalry is very intense. Uh, You don't take any prisoners. So we just uh, trounced them last year. Uh, well, actually, we beat them in the last second shot, but we won. If you were to hear me tell it, uh, as I would tell it from the pulpit the next day, it was like we won by, by 125 points. But if you were listening to him tell the story about the same game, is that they were robbed because of a few bad calls here or there, a few, a few uh, miscommunications on their offensive scheme. It's the same story told from different perspectives and different vantage points, and that's what we have here. Well, turn with me to Luke's gospel. Turn to Luke 23 with me. Now, when you compare the gospels, it highlights the emphases that they're trying to make. Now, in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaks three times from the cross. The first thing that he says from the cross, and I'm sorry, it's Luke chapter 24... The first words that he, not 24, but 23. The first words that he speaks from the cross are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He hangs on the cross, and look with me beginning in verse 33. And they came to the place called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing doing. Now, the other Gospels don't mention that. Now, we need to remember they have stripped him of all of his clothing. He is being humiliated by people that he had created. His mother, John tells us, is nearby. He's a man in his 30s. His, the flesh of his back has been opened up. The muscles are probably showing. He is, uh, he is battling, going into shock. He's strangling on his own blood. 
And the very first words that he speaks are words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, the interesting thing is that the very next person in the Bible that's described as dying is a man by the name of Stephen. Turn over to Acts chapter 7 with me. In Acts chapter 7, I think you just recently studied Stephen, didn't you? Freshman guy's Bible study. Notice that Stephen, you're familiar with the story. He's the first Christian martyr. And go to the end of the chapter with me. At the end of the chapter, verse 57, and they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. He's been preaching the gospel to them. He says, I see heaven open the Son of Man uh, standing at the right hand of God. They cover their ears. They rush at him. Uh, They lay their robes aside at the feet of a young man named Saul. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Uh, He fell on the ground. They begin stoning him. He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep or he died. Now, I wonder where he learned that from. Jesus died praying forgiveness for him for those who were executing him. And Stephen, the very next person described as dying, does the same thing. And there's a man by the name of Saul, whom we know to be, who becomes Paul. Well, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 are the last words written by the Apostle Paul, probably just days before he was decapitated in Rome by Nero. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul is getting ready to stand trial, the final trial where, where he's going to, be, is going to be declared that he's going to be executed. Already, everybody that he's been close to, virtually everybody has abandoned him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So you've got Jesus to Stephen to Paul. It was hard for me when I, when I became a Christian to, to love my, my mother. Because my mother abandoned my brother and I and our family when we were when we were young, and even though I know she loved us, she did. She lived a, a bad life, and uh, and and paid a lot of heavy consequences for it. But not long after I met Jesus, and I began to understand the depth of my own sin and how wicked of a person I was. I began to understand it would be hypocritical for me not to forgive my mother that it would be wrong for me to receive God's forgiveness and not to extend to her the same forgiveness that God had so freely and generously uh, given to me. And so we go back to Luke chapter 23. And Luke tells us, and only Luke, when we compare him to Mark and to John, that the very first thing Jesus did was he prayed a prayer of forgiveness. The second thing that Jesus said from the cross was a promise of eternal life. He said to the thief on the cross today, in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today 
you shall be with me in paradise. It's not that Mark and John didn't know about it. They had their own purposes and their own emphases. But it's as if Luke is saying it's never too late. You're never so close to hell that you can't be snatched away until you're in hell. And this man was right on the verge of going to hell. In fact, in just a few hours, they were going to break his leg so that he would suffocate. And rather than going to hell like the other man did, he went to heaven. And so when you compare Luke to Mark and John, Luke has this beautiful emphasis that even in his weakest moment, Jesus was powerful to save. That even in the moment that he was most unlikely to want to save somebody, he saved somebody. And so we see the power and we see the generosity, the greatness of the Savior. And then the last thing that we see is that he dies by committing his, his life into, or his spirit into the Father's hand. Look in verse 46. Now remember in Mark's gospel, it's an inarticulate scream. In Matthew's gospel, it is finished. He bows and gives up his, his spirit. Probably you could reconcile those to say that that inarticulate scream was Jesus saying, it is finished. And then as he bows his head to give up his spirit, he says, Father... Look with me in verse um, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And so the the point that, that we're wanting to make by these few examples is, if you really want to know about Jesus, you've got to know the Gospels. And as you read through a gospel and get to know the gospel, you're asking the question, why did the author put the story in the order that he did? And what does this story teach me about Jesus? And how can I look at the way that the other gospels have described this same story and learn more about the gospel that I'm reading and studying. And you see it by the way that they construct the story, by what they emphasize, if there's a couple of references to the Holy Spirit or whatever it might be. And 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 it brings out for us a richness and a fullness and an understanding that that we previously didn't, uh, that we didn't have. So I'd like to to lead us in in a word of prayer and then to ask Curtis to come back up and transition us. I'd like for you to think about for just a moment if there's somebody in your life that you need to forgive. Luke really wants us to know that Jesus wants us to forgive. It might have been a friend that betrayed you, a parent that assaulted you. person that let you down, betrayed your confidence, stabbed you in the back, broke broke your heart. Would you take just a moment right now and do to them what Jesus did for those who crucified him? And would you forgive them?
Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us if we are in Christ Jesus. And that because you have forgiven us, we have every responsibility to forgive others. Help us to be a forgiving people and not a bitter people. And help us as we read the Gospels to really fall into deeper love with Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.